So it is uh, March 11th, 2015. This message is called Fold of the Garment. I've been uh, thinking about it for some time. Uh, it's come to me in various forms to be able to share with you, and uh, you're going to get some of that tonight. You're going to want to put a bookmark in uh, Ezekiel, the first chapter. And while you're turning to Ezekiel, I'm going to read to you something off the notes <laughs> uh, from 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 4. It says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, somebody say loved by God, that he has chosen you. Who did he choose? You. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Power, the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction, in my mind, are the marks of the chosen. I'm speaking tonight to those of you who have been chosen by God, who the gospel is more than a matter of words. Something has happened to you that have caused it to dwell in you with deep conviction, the power of the Holy Spirit and power that's demonstrated in your life. How many of you feel something of the kingdom when we worship? If you didn't feel that tonight, be patient. It can take a man a long time to dull his heart and God will break it in just a few weeks if you let him. Are you in Ezekiel? The reason that I shared that passage, which of course, as I said, was not in my notes with you, is because the things that I'm sharing with you tonight are not things I got out of some preacher's book. They are not things that I found in 15 steps or preaching for dummies or any of those things. They're things that are deeply held convictions for me. So when Jennifer and I went away on a cruise not that long ago, we read the book of Ezekiel together among other things. And these are things that the Lord began to speak to me out of Ezekiel. So you see next to Ezekiel 1.1 in my notes, a couple words. These are the words that stood out to me. I want to read you the verse. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. You could read that and just keep reading. But it dawned on me. We are always among the exiles. Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. All of mankind has been exiled. And among the exiles, there is always a special group of people. Those whose eyes have been opened to see something. And because they've seen it, their lives will never be the same. I dwelt for 18 years as a total exile. I was outside the economy of God. I was outside the kingdom of God. I was outside the things of God. And I knew it because every night I still felt guilty. But one day, the heavens were opened to me. Somebody say opened. opened. How many of you like to get to doors and they're closed? How many of you like to get to your favorite restaurant for lunch and it's closed that day? How many of you have been to Chick-fil-A on a Sunday and were mad at Chick-fil-A? Come on now. Had to settle for Subway. None of us like things that are closed. Keep your finger in Ezekiel 1. Turn with me to Luke 11, 10 through 13. <clears throat> Say there when you were there. 
In Luke 11, starting in verse 10, you see these words. So I say unto you, uh, that's actually nine, but that's okay, we can start there. So I say unto you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who, who knocks, the door will be opened. I don't know how you interpret that. But I can tell you in any language you read it in, it says if you knock, the door will be opened. So let me ask you, is God a liar? Then begin knocking on his door, asking him to open the heavens to you. Because he said, if you knock, he'll do it. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I maintain before you today that he will give an unlimited experience to you. That he pours out his spirit without measure. That he will open your eyes in an increasing fashion. I don't believe in a glimpse of heaven. I believe that what begins as a trickle becomes Niagara Falls. The question is, are you hungry? Are you beating on his door? The Lord began to deal with me. And I'm going to tell you what he said to me, and then I'm going to tell you what I say to you. He asked me if I was going to camp on the accomplishments that he had given me. Now I'm asking you, have you seen all of the revelation of heaven that you want? Are you satisfied with a baseball park level of revelation? John 3.16. What's John 3.17? I got no idea. What's John 3.15? No idea. Are you satisfied with a theme park level of revelation? Or do you want to beat down the door of heaven and say, Father, you said I could have and I have to have. Because this man was among the exiles just like us. He was not in a good situation. He was in occupied land. He was in the enemy territory. But that did not stop him from seeing into the heavens. What stops us? Oh my goodness. There's not a jail cell in the world that Jesus Christ will not show up in. But there's more than one church that he's never shown up in. When a man is hungry for heaven to be open to him, the Lord will open heaven to him. If I were going to title this 10-minute message, it would be called, It's Open. We need to stop asking, or acting rather, like heaven is closed to us. Like a theologian in the 16th century saw all of heaven there is, and so now that's what you get to know. If Calvin said, these five points, then I guess that's all there is. There couldn't be six, there can't be four. Calvin got it all. If Luther stood on this one point, then that must be all there is because heaven is now closed. The Lord began to deal with me. The heavens are opened to those who knock. And let me tell you, friends, once your eyes have been opened, the world we live in looks differently. How about Hebrews 10? You can keep your finger in Ezekiel. Go to Hebrews 10. Tell me when you're in verse 19. In fact, we can put these on the screen and you can stay, if you would like to, in Ezekiel. Therefore, brothers, 
Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, what's that word? Open for us through the curtain that is his body. What kind of price had to be paid to have the heavens open to you? It's the very body of Jesus. And when you look at the rest of this verse, it says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. Church, I want you to know that heaven is declared open territory to those who want him. The kingdom of heaven. You know, you can't look into all of the affairs of China. You cannot look into all of the affairs of North Korea. Just to go to the country of India who is an ally, it cost an exhausting amount of money. You have to promise not to bring certain kinds of phones. Certain affairs in India are not open to us as U.S. citizens. But the kingdom of God is open for those who want it. Too many theologians, too many pastors, and therefore too many Christians sit and act as if heaven's not open. Oh, who can know these things? Oh, I don't know, but when we get to heaven, this is thinly veiled cowardice. The heavens are open. Do you have the courage to take a long, hard look? Because when you do, it also says something about our lives. When you can compare God's kingdom with our life, we come up woefully short. So most people would rather not look. But oh my goodness, when you see the way God does things, can I tell you it's beautiful? It's always right. It's always good. Oh, it may hurt a little bit now, but joy will come in the morning. Turn with me to Acts 14 or keep your finger in Ezekiel and we'll put Acts 14, 27 on the screen. This is Paul and Barnabas. They have gone on a missionary journey and now they're revisiting everyone to whom they've told about the kingdom of God. It says on arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. You're going to have to trust Beyond what your eyes can see. You're going to have to trust beyond just the words that are coming out of someone's mouth. And you are going to have to look into the heavens. And say, Father, through the curtain that is the body of the Son. I believe I have access to your throne. Will you speak to me from there? Will you give me a dream? Will you give me a vision? Will you speak to me through your word? I need to hear from you because I belong to you. And once that has happened, oh man, what the sun has opened, nobody can close. There was a time that a pontiff stood reigning over the whole world and tried to close heaven to anyone who did not follow his political persuasions, but he was unable. Before him, there were Caesars of the very same spirit who tried to close the heavens to anyone who did not do their bidding, but they were unable. The kingdom of God is open for all, rich or poor, smart or needing wisdom. It requires one thing. The key to that door is to trust that what he says is right. Let me ask you, is the word of God true? Is the word of God flawless? I tell you, the kingdom is open. Are you open to it? 
There is our first 10-minute message. It came from the first chapter of Ezekiel. We have six to go. Wherever I go for the rest of my life, one of the messages that will accompany me with deep conviction is the kingdom is open and no man has a right to close it. Has somebody shut you out of the kingdom? Or have you shut yourself out of the kingdom? You say, well, the priest says this. Well, the pastor says that. Well, what my parents have said, what I've always believed. The kingdom is open, friends. Check it out for yourself. In Ezekiel, the second chapter, the Lord spoke to me something else from his open heavens. This section is called, It's Time to Eat. In fact, let me just run through the 10-minute messages with you. It's open is the first one. The second, it's time to eat. The third, this is your spot. The fourth, go ahead. The fifth, tuck it in. The sixth, let's say grace. The seventh, fill your stomachs. Can you tell I was hungry? Can I tell you, you preach about what you know. If the Lord could speak to Peter while Peter was praying about food, then I imagine the Lord could speak to me. In Ezekiel 2, starting in the 8th verse, comes these words. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me and it was a scroll. I want to tell you that what has separated people through the generations has not just been the revelation that heaven is open or the view that heaven is closed. By heaven, I don't mean a theme park in the sky. I mean that realm in which God dwells and his authority is fully known. That thing with which we are praying, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That rulership that exists there extended to the earth. People can be divided into those who believe it's open and those who can believe it that it is closed. Among those who claim to be Christians, another division starts right here. I say it's time to eat. But God told Ezekiel, do not be like the rebellious house you're a part of. Eat what I put before you. Have you noticed that people preach what they like and avoid what they dislike? They hate everyone else's sin and they love their own. We love to quote the verse that chops up our neighbor while ignoring the verse that calls us equally guilty. We cloak all of our language in, well, I was once this. Well, how about what you are right now? Well, we don't like to talk about that. I would like to say that we must eat the word of God no matter what it says about us. Oh, has anybody eaten a good meal recently? Today, I ate Genghis Grill. You might be able to smell the garlic from where you're at. I stacked bean sprouts on top of a bowl about that high. The restaurant all noticed my engineering feat. And then I managed to eat the entire thing. Oh, when you're eating something you enjoy, you like to savor it. There are men in this world... Curtis is one of them. Buddy is one of them. They like to see the combination in which foods uh, go together well. In fact, certain combinations make sense. In South Louisiana, garlic, bell pepper, and onion is referred to as the trinity among very religious people. 
Because there's something about that combination that sets it off. Church, what about the things that the Lord is eating that don't, wants us to eat that doesn't just set it off for you? What happens when he says a word to you that hurts? Do you do what you did when you were a kid with the Brussels sprouts? Do you just push it aside? Do you feed it to the family dog? Do you beg your brother to eat it, but do not let it touch your lips? I've noticed in Christian circles that we avoid entire sections of the Scripture simply because it's not what we like to eat. In fact, sometimes they relegate it to different dispensations altogether. Could you look at Hebrews 5.14? We'll put it on the screen for you. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. They train themselves by eating the Word of God. If you eat the parts you like and disregard the parts that you don't like, you never become mature and cannot distinguish good from evil. Do you want to do something for God? If you do, you're going to have to have eyes that have seen into the heavens. You cannot preach what you have not seen, what you don't comprehend, what you don't really know. You're also going to have to daily eat the Word of God. If you are a bodybuilder, if you are a marathoner, if you are a professional athlete, your diet has to be commensurate with your activity. Otherwise, you would waste or swell. Your diet has to be commensurate with... So let me ask, what does your diet say about what you intend to do for God? Are you eating an appropriate level of the word of God for what you say you are called to do. I have found out that people boast great things that they're called to do, but they eat as if they are in a concentration camp when it comes to eating the word of God. I want to encourage you to begin to devour God's word. This is the only way to maturity. Could we look at Matthew 26, 26? Another reason to eat the word of God. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. When you are eating the word of God, you are eating the character of Christ. In the same way that food, vitamins and nutrients go into your body and they produce something. When the word of God goes into you, it produces something, the character of Christ. Sometimes the reason that we're falling, sometimes the reason that we can't look heavenward is simply that we don't have the right caloric intake of the word of God. We simply don't have enough of Jesus in us yet. Oh, church. People died to get the book that you hold in your lap and what we so easily put on a screen now. You can send it on a PDF around the world through email and men and other generations gave their very lives just to get it a 100 miles to their neighbors. This is a blood-soaked book. Is it swelling from exposure to the sun in the trunk of your car? Or is it precious to you? There's a very few things in my house that are precious to me. A few of them I keep above the microwave, locked away from everyone else to bring out only on special occasions because it's precious to me. I want to savor every bit, none of it wasted. 
Anybody who knows Eric Stevens knows I love this Bible. I built special Bible cover for it. I don't even like you to hold my Bible. You can look at it from a distance. But if you hold it, I'm liable to correct you, especially if you bend the pages wrong. Because I intend for this to make it with me right into the kingdom of God on earth. The saddest day in my life was when somebody stole my childhood Bible for me. I've taken the death of friends easier than that. And it's because this is how I live. Where else would I go? This is the very word of God. Do you genuinely feel that way about it? And if you do, do your actions show it? In Matthew 4, 4, Jesus in serious mortal combat with the enemy says, It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. How often do you like to eat? My body begins reminding me if I go more than three hours without eating. I wake up thinking about what I get to eat that day. I seldom ever wake up in drudgery going, what do I have to eat today? I can walk through an area that is a food court and my senses become alive with what all I I might get to eat there. Hence the reason for my morbid obesity. How do you feel about the word of God? Do you wake up thinking what you have to read today or what you probably won't and you'll do another? Or do your senses come alive at what you might discover in the word because the heavens are open to you? Oh, church, if you want to make it in the kingdom of God, the heavens are going to have to be open. You're going to have to eat what he put before you and know this. The king of kings says it is a rebellious house that will not eat what he puts before them. So let me ask you, what is he cooking for you? Has he been speaking to you out of the word for a very long time and you have turned a deaf ear to it? In the third chapter of Ezekiel, I wrote in my notes, this is your spot. This is Ezekiel 3, starting in verse 5. You are not being sent to a people of obscure speech and difficult language. But to the house of Israel, not to many peoples of obscure speech and difficult language, whose words you cannot understand. Hear this part. Surely if I had sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But the house of Israel is not willing to listen to you, because they are not willing to listen to me. For the whole house of Israel is hardened and obstinate. But I will make you as unyielding and as hardened As they are. He goes on to talk about his forehead being made like granite. (laughs) Blockhead. Hardhead. Stubborn. Oh, I've been called all of those things. The living God did not call you somewhere that you are not. He called you to the people that you're sitting around. The people you're living around. The people that you are working around. We are a missions church. Very often we are speaking of missions. Missions pictures surround us. And my heart is for the nations. But the Lord spoke to me and said, If I had called you to them, they would have listened to you. I called you here. That was not my favorite word, but I just promised I would eat whatever he put before me. So what is it that we're trying to say? 
At the same time that I am obligating you to the field you are standing in, this is your spot. I am telling you, he will make you as hard as you have to be to reach the people here. Church, we are in a gospel-hardened land. The Bible is the book everyone thinks they know what it contains and no one has actually read. I can't tell you the number of pastors that have never completed this book and it is so obvious when you talk to them. Everybody confidently affirms that they know all about that, but when challenged to name five scriptures, they can't do it. To outline one psalm, name six rivers, they can't do it. When I name my children in front of them, they don't recognize their biblical names. How then did they read the book? It'd be like having watched the Star Wars trilogy, or now it's more than three, (laughs) and not knowing who Darth Vader or Anakin Skywalker are, but would you accept that they had watched the movies? Probably not. But I'm not really talking about them right now. I want to tell you that our soil is difficult. Because everyone believes they're all right with God now. And we love missions in this church because those people want to hear about our God. And yet, he planted you right here, just like me. So what is our response? We say, Lord, if the ground is hard, make the sickle sharper. Lord, if the ground is hard, make the plow deeper. Lord, make me whatever I need to be for them and his response is yes yes says the spirit of god i will do it and i will do more i gotta tell you i shed more tears over that concept than any other i am the cow leaning on the fence sure the grass is better over there and the lord has made very clear to me my job is to raise up springs in this country that feed the palm trees in those nations So for the rest of my life, that is what I will do because we eat what is put before us. Let me ask you, how content are you with this being your spot? 2 Corinthians 10 in verse 13 (coughs) has got great bearing on this subject. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the field God has assigned to us, a field that reaches even to you. How did Paul, Apollos, Peter, how did they know that this was their field? Because their field reached even these people. God planted them in a place. When he puts you somewhere, then you are supposed to bloom where he put you. You will not be blessed by simply calling the place that you live a bad place. By the way, you're supposed to be the solution because you've seen into the heavens and you've had a heavenly caloric intake and now this is the spot. I am here to bring heaven to earth because Jesus is not only the light of the world, he's called me the light of the world. Romans 15, 14 also addresses the subject. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge and competent to instruct one another. In other words, Paul, who had never been to the Roman church, figured that if God called the Romans to live in that area, that he had also made them competent to handle each other's needs. Oh, one of the favorite sayings in my house when we feel inadequate and we feel inadequate often 
What are we going to do in the next meeting? We often say while we're driving there. We pray and say we will be whatever God needs us to be in that moment. And then when we step out of the car, we are the Apostle Paul. Do we realize that that's not true? Yes, and at the same time, we declare it true. And you know what? It's worked out pretty good for most of you. Consider the alternative. Hide in a corner, bite your nails, and talk about what you will one day do for God while never doing anything. Who will be blessed by that? Oh, church, the pastors you have consider ourselves competent because God has made us competent. Could we go to 2 Corinthians 3 in verse 6? He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Church, we have been made competent because the Spirit of the living God is inside of us. What do you feel inadequate to do? Well, I don't feel adequate to read in church. I don't feel adequate to pray for people. I realize you are indicting the Spirit of God that lives in you as not being enough. Uh, listen, inadequacy is not humility. Those are far different things. Christians love to do this. Oh, I'm just a, an old sinner. I'm not worthy of anything. Then why did Jesus die for you? You need to grow up. You may have been just an old sinner, powerless. But the moment he died for you, he made you precious. You were transformed into a son of God, a person of value in the kingdom. The Bible actually says you can have the mind of Christ. Why would we sit and call ourselves inadequate? That's to bring Christ down. Unless, of course, you've never seen into the heavens and you're not eating his word because then you are grossly inadequate. I try not to pick on other congregations. I feel free to pick on their pastors, but I try not to pick on the congregations. I want you to understand that if someone is not seen into heaven, if they are not eating the word of God, then they are feeding you from the feeble mind of men and no wonder you are inadequate. But if you are receiving the substance of heaven, then you have what it takes. And if you don't have it, then you can get it on the way. Do you know how many times Matthew Piro and I have set out on some journey completely inadequate for the task and the scripture we were discussing on the way provided the answer to the question we didn't know would be asked? Oh, that you could eat the word of God. Which brings us to our fourth point. Go ahead. In Ezekiel 3, in verse 22. Are you there? Have I bored you yet? No. I'm trying with all of my heart to give it to you as it was given to me. The hand of the Lord was upon me there. And he said to me, get up and go out to the plain and there I will speak to you. So I got up and I went out to the plain and the glory of the Lord was standing there like the glory I had seen by the Kibar River and I fell face down. I got to tell you, this was so troubling to us. So why, Eric? It's good. <laughs> It was troubling because Ezekiel in the first chapter saw the heavens. The 28th verse actually says he saw the likeness of the glory of God. That's pretty good. Is that pretty good? Yeah. Haley, is that good back there? Yeah. That's good. And by the third chapter, halfway through, God's saying, you got to go somewhere else for me to reveal myself to you. Lord, I can't sit on what you've already shown me. It's not enough. And if you showed it to me there, 
Can't I just stay there where you've always spoken to me? The, apparently the answer is no. You go to the plane where I told you to go and I will speak to you there. There are some things that the Lord will only show you as you are being obedient to what he's already told you to do. Oh, church, could you hear that? Sometimes we're not getting a glimpse into the heavens because we haven't done the last thing he told us to do. There's a great question in my theology. Were they apostles and so they went? Or in the going, did it become clear that they were apostles? Were they evangelists and so they preached? Or in preaching, did we discover that they were evangelists? It is my opinion that you are called to do something, but until you're doing it, that calling doesn't become evident. And it may actually never come about simply because you sat on your salvation and folded your hands. Oh, church, I don't want to be like that. As the Lord began telling us this, we began to realize it was now our job to do more than we had done behind this pulpit. I love this pulpit. I love this congregation. The thought of spending weeks away in another country I could live with. I've done that. 100 days in 2012. The thought of spending weeks away from this congregation in this country was not appealing to me at all. You know me. My opinion has been if you want what we have, get on a plane and come here. You're Americans. You can do it. And the Lord is telling us that we need to go there. <clears throat> Nearly everything I've ever made fun of, Pastor Sutherland, I'm ending up doing. Wow. We bought an RV a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, we're going to be those people. Next Christmas, I might empty my chemical sewer in your storm drain. <laughs> yep, that's going to be us. And we don't know how it's all going to work. I'm going to be honest. But I believe in going, the revelation will come. And to sit here and wait for a perfectly formed plan to fall from the sky is not an option because he's already told me to go. Church, make up your mind that when he says go, the distance between here and there doesn't matter. That the answer is yes before he has asked the question. You know, that's what lordship is. Could you look at Mark 10, verse 21? Time is a relative subjective thing. I'm just preaching in a different time zone. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Somebody say loved him. By the way, this is somebody who had kept the commandments, a rich young man, a ruler, someone who has answered wisely. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. He said, one thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, say then come, follow me. Until he did what Jesus told him to do, he could not follow Jesus any further. Oh, I can't tell you how important that is. Many times we're trying to chase after Jesus and we cannot because we have not been obedient to the previous revelation. Say, so Jesus, I want to be with you on the mountain. You can't, son. You didn't do what I told you to do in the valley. Go do that. Uh, this shows up all over the scripture. If you're praying at the altar and there, fine, you have something against your brother, go make it right with him. And then, oh, church, 
There are things in this kingdom that must be done before you move on to the other step. If you think that you can be blessed by God while harboring unforgiveness, you are so wrong. The church is rife with this kind of stuff. It's almost as if we're sliding down a list, deciding what we'll be obedient to and hoping if we're obedient to the majority of the list, it will be okay. Jesus looked at this man and said one thing you lack. Not half, not 20%, not 10%, one. And you cannot follow me until you have done that one thing I told you to do. Yeah, he wants you to quit sin cold turkey. He's not going to let you ease out of it. One thing. In John 14, 15, he says it this way. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Think what it says to the king of kings. When you say, I have seen heaven opened. When you say, I have eaten your word. When you say, I am in the spot you have put me and I am confident because you've called me to. And he says, go and I will give you revelation as you do this. And you say, nah. Means that your love for him is weaker than you think it is. Because if you love him, you obey him. How about Mark 16, 7? But go Tell his disciples and Peter. (laughs) That would break my heart if I was Peter reading it. But in any case, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. If you don't see Jesus in your present situation, you need to ask yourself, have I been obedient to what he told me to do? Sometimes he's ahead of you. It's not that you're in the wrong place. It's that you haven't done what you're supposed to do. And until you do it, you can't go on to Galilee where he's waiting for you. Imagine that any father has told his son, clean your room and I will meet you at the drag strip. So I just can't get to the drag strip. Uh, Have you cleaned your room? Would be the right question to ask. No. Well, perhaps when you cleaned your room, you would find that dad left the keys to the Corvette. But until you clean the room, you don't know it's there. Church, you have no idea what selective obedience does to your progress in the kingdom. It so stifles it that you might actually get confused and blame God for your lack of progress. Go back and take an inventory of your life. Do you want to lead men? You need to to look into the heavens. You have to eat the word of God. You have to see whatever your spot is that you're in as the spot you're supposed to be in. And you have to go ahead and do what God says to do. If he's there, you get over there. (laughs) You know, he told him, go to the plains and there I will meet with you. And then the next verse is, and the Lord met with him there. I'm going to tell you the truth. I don't really know what I'm doing in Washington, D.C. when I go. But I trust when I get there, I will find the Lord ahead of me. Because it's in obedience to him that I'm going there. And every day that I stayed here past the day I was supposed to be here, I think I would feel increasingly awkward as if perhaps maybe somehow the Lord's favor was somewhere that I was not. I might even start to blame you or the other leaders around me. I might become increasingly discontent until I'm pretty sure that something's wrong with God when all of the time I just didn't have the courage to go where Jesus was ahead of me. Oh, church, I pray you find courage. Are you with me today? The fifth point, tuck it in. Come on now, I could have said suck it in. 
You know what I'm talking about, don't you? When somebody says, let's take a picture, what do you do? Brandon says, which way is the gym? I love Christians. I see your Facebook pages and I laugh so often. My Bible, my coffee, look how holy. Wow. Just spending some time with Jesus and the rest of you, seven million people that are looking at this. Just wanted you to know. It's comical. It really is. Tuck it in. Ezekiel 5, 2 through 3. Talk about our best foot forward in the kingdom. This is how it's done. We're going to start in 5.1. Now, son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor to shave your head <laughs> and your beard. Which would you be more upset about, Nick, your head or your beard? <laughs> then take a set of scales and divide up the hair. He must have had quite a beard. When the days of your siege come to an end, burn a third of the hair with fire inside the city. Take a third and strike it with the sword all around the city and scatter a third to the wind for I will pursue them with drawn sword. Let's hold on there for a second. I am not a math guy. That's not my thing. But I think one third and then another third and then a third third constitutes all, doesn't it? We cut something into three pieces and we light the first piece on fire and then we light the second piece on fire and then we throw the third piece and chase it with a sword, chopping it up. We've demolished all the pieces, haven't we? I'm going to tell you the truth. As I began to sit and, and pray and ask the Lord, open the heavens, show me, Lord, what do I need to know about this? Why do you have me reading this? I believe he said this would happen to our nation. I'm not a doomsday prophet. That's not my job. And... I believe that something has fundamentally changed in our nation. And I began to get discouraged. Right after you tell me that I'm called to this nation and I don't get to go to the other nations, it sounds like this nation's going to hell. I'm not a fan of this president, but I'm not blaming this on him. It started a long time before him. It started a long time before Jimmy Carter. It started a long time ago. America's heart has been growing increasingly cold towards the gospel. The things that our grandparents and great-grandparents would have been so shocked at, they would have run right out of society today, are broadcast on televisions and laughed at by Christians every moment of nearly every day. I believe that there is a serious judgment coming upon our nation. And I don't think that it is a thousand years off. I don't think it's a hundred years off. I feel like it's been creeping up on us and I have been growing with awareness from it. And at the same time, I hear fewer and fewer pastors saying anything about it. Instead, every message that I hear is bless you, bless you, bless me, bless her, bless us, Johnny, Susie, us four, no more, just bless us, bless us, bless us. Sin is preached about less and less. This began to hurt as I thought about it, and then I read the next verse. But take a few strands of hair. The hair represents the people. But take a few strands of hair and tuck them away in the folds of your garment. Church, as I read that, I saw a man who loved his nation, and he lit one-third on fire. 
Then he had lit the other third on fire. And a third, uh, the, uh, the last third he throws into the air where God says, I'm going to chase it down and I'm going to destroy it with a sword. And it's like he's grasping it any little bit that he can. And every time he managed to catch one, he tucked it into the fold of his garment. This represents the remnant. This represents those who will actually see into heaven, those who will actually eat the word of God, those who will consider the spot that they live in, the spot that they are called to, those who will go from here to there if God says, no matter whether they understand or don't, those who recognize the time. As I looked into this scripture further, I found out that the garment is called a kanaf. That really got my heart. Those of you that are not into the Hebraic thing like I am, let me give you a crash course quickly. The prayer shawl that people wear, that we no longer have in here apparently. The prayer shawl that, it's in there. The prayer shawl that Messianics wear and Orthodox wear. It has corners on it. Those corners are called kanaf. The tassels that hang from the corner are called zitzit. Numbers 15.37 says that every Israelite male was to wear it and that it would have blue on it and it would have white on it and that those things would represent God's commands. It was a reminder to every man that you were cloaked in the word of God and that's how you raised your household. When they got married, they put it under four corners and it became a hopa. We're going to raise our household in this. That, that kanaf, that corner is where you took the hairs that represented people's lives and you tucked them in. You were pulling them into the ministry that is your life based on the Word of God. See, you cannot stand and reach the masses as masses. That does not work. I love that they preach to millions of people and I love that hundreds of thousands get saved on paper. Of course, when you go back two years later and we've had three more crusades, you've had more people saved than there are living in the town and the churches are still empty. It's my opinion that discipleship, that salvation is one life to one life. That Jesus himself didn't take on more than 12. And that those 12 then began to disciple others who would disciple others, but that nobody was reaching a million at a time. Because how would one man disciple a million or 6,000 or 50,000 or even a 1,000? It would have to come as one person wraps somebody else up in the ministry that is their life. In Exodus 19.4, Jesus used, not Jesus, God used these words. Moses wrote it. It says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. That word for wings, eagle's wings, is kanaf. It's the same word for the garment that Ezekiel wrapped up those hairs in. You say, which is it? Is it wings or is it a garment? The corners of the garment were thought of like wings. And the same way that a chick could be wrapped up in its mama's wings or an eagle could carry its young on wings, Israel felt personally in covenant with God. They felt personally protected by God. You know why? The firstborn in every person's family either died or was spared based on their relationship with God. You know, when it touches your house, it becomes personal, doesn't it? You hear a million people die, it doesn't faze you. You hear one person died that lives in your house, it blows you away. 
Real ministry is done when one life touches another life. Real pastoring can never be done from a pulpit. What is done from the pulpit is inspire the people to do what we should do in our daily lives. Tucked into the garment. What does this verse say to you? You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. Egypt was an oppressor. And how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. This speaks of God's protection. When God wraps you up in the fold of his garment, you are safe. If you are supposed to wrap someone up in the fold of your garment, it's got to be safe. You know, more person-to-person ministry is destroyed by then. How would you feel? What's your name, young man? Ryan? It's your fault for being good-looking. I mean, you're, I can't help it. We, we, could pick, we could pick an ugly one. We'll do that. We'll pick an ugly one. Buddy, how do you feel if I say, I'm going to minister with you? You say, oh, yeah, man, let's do that. I feel like, and then I run to Ryan and say, you'll never guess the weird crap that Buddy struggles with. What do you think that does to Buddy? Why do you hear that churches are full of hypocrites? Why do you hear that you can't trust church people? We've not taken this seriously. How would God have wrapped somebody up in that garment? He personally protected each one of them. Do you really care more about your neighbor than yourself? See, because it shows up in ways like this. To the Israelite, the corner of the garment represented protection. Remember, Boaz covered Ruth with the corner of his garment. This corner of the garment shows up everywhere. How about this one, Exodus 25, 20? The cherubim are to have their wings. The word wings there is kanaf, spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking towards the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put the ark in the testimony which I will give you. What we're describing is the mercy seat on the ark of the covenant. And do you know where it was found? Under the kanaf. You know, if you're going to wrap somebody up in the ministry that is your life, if you're going to reach out to a nation that we already know is bent on destruction, you're going to have to protect the people that are sent to you with the word of God. You're going to have to show them that under the fold of Jesus' garment, which you represent, there is mercy. Now, mercy is preached without preaching on sin today. That's not real mercy. Mercy is when you know you deserve punishment and instead you receive protection. You can't receive mercy without a revelation of sin. So I would maintain that what's being talked about as compassion is actually cruel. It's cruel because they don't know that they need mercy. They're being sold Disneyland tickets called the kingdom of God. Real mercy shows up when you were protected and you could have been stoned. Real mercy shows up when you know that you are guilty, but you're being credited with right standing. You want to see a picture of this? Jesus did it with the woman in John 8 who was caught in adultery, but we don't have time for that. Malachi 4.2 is one more kind of kanaf that you should hear. But for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its kanaf. The folds of the garment, the wings. Church, when we give up on praying for the sick, if you think salvation and healing are separate matters, you are so wrong. It's all found in the shadow of his wings. It's all found next to the shepherd's side. 
It's all under the covering of the Word of God. And when the church of God can no longer do the things God does, then how could the church of God represent God? Say, what? We've prayed for people and they haven't got healed. I've prayed for people and they haven't got saved. What makes that any different? Yeah? Say, well, they may yet get saved. Well, they may yet get healed. Church, I say they're exactly the same thing. Did you know that healed, whole, and salvation are all the same word in Hebrew? You're not hearing me espouse divine healing doctrines, divine health doctrines. I'm not here with a bone to pick. I'm telling you what the Lord told me. Told me, Eric, you live in a time where the nation that you are living in, you are called to, and it is receiving judgment. Most will not listen. Don't focus on the most who don't listen. Grab the ones who will and pull them into the ministry that is your life. Oh, church, if you could hear that, the fold of the garment is the place to be. Psalm 36, 7, Psalm 57, 1, Psalm 61, 5, Psalm 63, 8, Psalm 91, 4 are all passages where men who had seen into heaven said, Lord, protect me under the refuge of your wings. The world is crying out for the covering of God. They just see very little of it in the church. I say that you will never be any bigger than the ministry of your home in God's eyes. If you're a great man of God outside your house and you are lackluster in your house, then it is a facade. Tell me why preacher's kids are the worst. But if you are a great man of God inside of your house, then it's a matter of time and the rest of the world will see what you are. Oh, if I could get your attention, my heart's desire is that what Pastor Wade preached about them, you would see as pulling people into your life. We have tried to witness from afar and it doesn't work. We have tried to witness through television and radio and it doesn't work. We tried to witness through the internet and it doesn't work. The gospel was meant to be carried on your shoulders from one life to the next life. And when they feel protected, when they feel mercy, when they feel healed, when they have been touched by God because you were touched by God, they will want what you have. Maybe. Maybe. They've just met a lot of people who don't really have it. And so they're skeptical. I'm convinced that a lot of the most offensive people on the planet, the most withdrawn people on the planet, those who are slapping faces and even blaspheming are doing it because they simply want to see if you really are like Jesus. I've met more people who claim to be an atheist until I loved them and then they admitted that they never really were. More people who said they had some vile sin in their life. I am a whatever you can think of. And it was an attempt to push away. And when you loved them anyway, and you put in part of love is telling them what is sin. They craved it. And you found out they weren't nearly as far gone as they thought they were. They just needed a glimpse of heaven. Let's do this. Let's learn what grace is quickly. The sixth point is say grace. Am I boring you? It's late. Would y'all rather stop before we finish? If you want me to, I will do it. Cody, do you want me to? Keep going. Tonight, tonight, Cody's the largest man in the room, so I'm going to do it. Ezekiel 6, 8. 
Tell Al to come to church and he'll get a vote. But I will spare some, for some of you will escape the sword when you are scattered among the the lands and nations. He scattered a third to the wind, but he's saying even in that third that I scattered, I'm going to spare some. Then in the nations where they have been carried captive, those who escape will remember me. How I have been grieved by all their adulterous hearts, which have turned away from me, and by their eyes, which have lusted after their idols. They will loathe themselves. Somebody say that. Loathe themselves. For the evil they have done and for all of their detestable practices. This is found in no preaching today. I mean, you can scour messages and you will not find a pastor telling people they should loathe themselves for their adulterous behavior. You know what we hear? You're a champion. You're blessed. God loves you just the way you are. All of those things may be true, and yet that is an incomplete message of what grace is. Grace is when you know that you deserve the judgment of God, and that revelation causes you to hate the life that you've lived to the point that you want to die to it. I can't do it anymore. It's killing me. It's grieving God. I say no. That's entirely different than thinking, you know, I think I'll give this Jesus thing a try. That's entirely different than going, you know, I've been a pretty good boy all my life, but now, now I know about Jesus. I'm going to add a little Jesus to the mix. That's mostly what I hear. What God says is grace is he would spare some of them because they would remember him and loathe what they had done, even loathe themselves. You know what the next line is? They will loathe themselves for the evil that they have done, and they will know that I am the Lord. See, a revelation happens. When you learn what you are, it helps you see what God is. This is why the cults are more confused than ever. When they see themselves as enlightened and godlike, they begin to misunderstand what God is really like. When you see your state as it really is, then you better understand God and His holiness. Now understand something. He wants to tuck you in the cloak. But that starts with the revelation that you need His mercy. You need His healing. You need His protection. And I tell you, this is why whores and tax collectors accepted Jesus and the Pharisees did not. Jude 4 says, These are the godless men among you who change the the grace of God into a license for immorality. If what grace is to you is an excuse to sin some more, that's not grace. Grace is when you hate the sin you committed. You hate yourself for committing it. And only God could change that. Titus 2 verse 11 is a verse you should underline in your Bible. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to... Next verse. It, it, that grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You say that you're covered by God's grace? I say if that's an excuse to sin tomorrow, it's not really grace. If that grace is teaching you to hate sin 
to hate yourself for having committed sin and to ask to be made new in the attitude and heart of your mind so that you can say no to sin which you now hate. That is the grace of God. I'm going to tell you the truth. That message has been destroyed in this country and for that reason the judgment of God is coming on this nation. We are preaching grace as something that it's not. We, on our watch, have changed it into a license for immorality. We say grace is a blank check to sin, but if you love the Lord, you won't use it. What a bunch of poppycock. The theologians that have devised this garbage, this manure, they are damning the souls of people. Grace is when you no longer want to sin because you hate it. You're at war with it. It killed your Christ, the love of your life. You've seen Him in the heavens and you no longer want to live like a normal man. Let me ask you, have you really been touched by the grace of God? John 12, 25 puts it as succinctly as possible. The man who loves his life will lose it, but the man who, what's that word say? Hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There's no room for this preaching in America anymore. Hate. When you talk about your past life with some level of fondness, you are showing yourself to be unredeemed. When you are whining about what you used to do in Egypt, except for you, Ibrahim, who is from Egypt. Church, hear me. This is not to beat you over the head with a stick. We need to redefine grace for our time because we're living in a time of judgment. We need to get back to a biblical definition of grace. Grace is when you first learn to hate sin. Grace is when you declare war on sin, when you realize that it is death. Not just for somebody else, but for you. You show me people sitting in church claiming to love Jesus that love sin, and I tell you, you have unredeemed men that you have taught. They're about as much Christians as monkeys are astronauts. You can put them in a rocket and send them to the moon, but that does not mean that they're Neil Armstrong. You can sit a man in a chair and get him to go, "Uh uh-huh, at a few doctrinal points, but that does not mean that this kind of grace has appeared in his heart. And when it has appeared in his heart, all the powers of hell cannot unwrench it. He may do things that break his own heart, but they are the exception. They are the war within him. They are what he's crying out for liberation from. He doesn't delight in it. It's waging war against him and him against it. And by the Spirit of Christ, we are overcoming it. This brings us to the seventh part. Fill your stomachs. I got seven ten-minute messages out of the seven chapters of Ezekiel. Imagine what would happen if you read all of the chapters of Ezekiel. In chapter 7 and verse 19, they will throw their silver into the streets and their gold will be an unclean thing. Their silver and gold will not be able to save them in the day of the Lord's wrath. They will, they will not satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it. Hear this. For it, the silver and gold, it has made them stumble into sin. They were proud of their beautiful jewelry and used it to make their detestable idols and vile images. I was sitting in the lap of luxury, which for me is soft serve ice cream in the Caribbean Ocean. 
And I was watching people who had enough freedom, enough affluence to take a week off of work, eat all they wanted, drink all they wanted, and go to the prettiest places on the planet. And I watched what they did with their time. Watched the way they danced with each other. The way when wives left the table, husbands' eyes weren't trained on their wives. I watched those things. And I realized the truth of this verse. It's our affluence that is killing us. Having as much as you want has kept us from having to depend on God for what we don't have. Affluence is the great sin of America. And affluence in itself, money, it's not evil. It's the love of it. It's the worship of it. It's the lifelong pursuit to accumulate as much of it as you can so you can do what you want with it. And to that end, the Scripture has a few very pertinent messages. In Lamentations 4 and verse 1, how the gold has lost its luster. The fine gold has become dull. The sacred gems are scattered the head at the head of every street. How the precious sons of Zion, once worth their weight in gold, are now considered as pots of clay, the work of a potter's hands. I got to tell you what is highly valued among men is detestable to God. And what is valued by God is detestable to men. What you've worked your whole life for might be something that God hates. And if you're working for God, what you work your whole life for might be something that men despise. You know, gold loses its luster. Can you imagine surrounded by all that you wanted and still not happy? Because that is most people that I know. And they're pretty sure that the next BMW, the next bass boat, the next deer lease, the next will, will make them happy. And three months after they have it, you know what? They're still unhappy. We're a nation of consumers. God will bring us to a place where the gold has lost its luster. As a pastor, I take this very, very personally because it's happening on our watch. In Lamentations 2.14, the prophet Jeremiah says something terrible. The visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sin to ward off captivity. The oracles they gave you were false and misleading. Hear this. If preaching is not exposing sin so that you can experience grace that teaches you to say no to it, it will never ward off captivity. It's false. It's misleading. Preaching that simply makes you feel better about the way that you're already living is devilish. If you read the sermons of the 18th century, it didn't matter whether it was Protestant, it didn't matter whether it was Presbyterian or Methodist. It didn't matter whether it was Baptist or Lutheran. They preached against sin. They knew it would destroy society. They knew it would destroy men's will to live. They knew that if you lose the battle with sin, you've lost everything. Today, we don't even acknowledge there is a battle. 1 Timothy six seventeen through 19 tells us how we should treat wealth. Command those. (laughs) The word command, what an interesting word. Command those. Over 240 some odd times in the Bible, but only 40 some of them in the New Testament. And it shows up in this book at least three times. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth. I'm not, Pastor. I don't put my hope in wealth. 
Well, would you feel any different if your bank account was empty? Because mine is. Would you feel any different if you didn't have a 401k? If you didn't have an Obama net or whatever it is that we're doing these days? Which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. You know what the purpose of wealth is? It's to advance the kingdom of God. Period. Not to put the pastor in an escalate. Not to build gated communities. Not so they didn't have a $6,000 suit. In fact, the church is only here to equip people to reach the dying world. Ministering only to people in the church is like fishing in an aquarium. This is supposed to be about them. Does your heart beat for them? See, once you've seen into the heavens, you realize how pale this earth is. Once you've eaten of the word of God, you realize how stale the food is here. Once you've realized the joy of being content in the spot he put you, you feel sorry for those that haven't found it. Once you realize that that courageous step to take the next step with God, wherever it is, is the most rewarding, fulfilling thing you've ever done in your life. You have compassion on those that are crippled by their cowardice. Once you've seen the joy of a life saved from the ministry that flows out of your life, how can you not want to repeat that process over and over and over? We've never had a six-month period where somebody's not living with us because I'm addicted to it. Most of them are pastors today. Once you've learned what grace really is, it's offensive to you when people call it something that it's not. Once you've learned to fill your stomach with heavenly things, this earthly stuff just turns your stomach. I want to share with you a final verse. Matthew, would you come up here? Matthew gave me this verse today. One of the great joys in my life is to be in partnership with Wade Sutherland and Matthew Pirro. Our families work together in covenant. We work together in covenant very tightly with the three of us, Stephen Richards and Charlie Brown and their wives, and us form a ministry team. There are five of us total. Privately, we refer to that as the fist of God. <laughs> Publicly, we say it's a ministry team. Matthew shared with me this verse out of Exodus. It's Exodus 17 in verse Five. This is Moses dealing with some discontentment with his people. It says, The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. If you want to get anywhere with God, you're going to have to get ahead of the people. You've got to know that. If you are comfortable doing what the rest of the world is doing, and the Bible says they are condemned already, You can't win in God's eyes like that. How do you walk on ahead of the people? You're going to have to see something they don't see. You're going to have to go after the kingdom of God. He says, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. We don't go alone. God's kingdom advances in covenant. No man is an island. And most of the ministries that have experienced disastrous falls did it because they did it in an unbiblical fashion. Jesus sent people out two by two. Peter and John worked together. Paul and Barnabas worked together. Paul and Silas worked together. 
Andronicus and Junus, outstanding among the apostles. Not going to ask you how many didn't know who they were. The Bible is replete with pairs because God works in covenant. You not only walk on ahead, you do it with others who are. So you're ahead of the crowd, but you're not alone. This keeps you from getting into some kind of weirdness. It keeps you from saying that you saw something that the Bible doesn't support. I can't tell you the number of people that have fallen in this area. They had a spiritual experience, but it wasn't the Spirit of God because there was no brother there to say, hey, the Word doesn't agree with that. Stop it. You have to walk on ahead of the people. You take with you elders. Secondly, you take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Anything that God has ever done for you in your life is to go with you. You can't live on what happened yesterday, but what happened yesterday is the basis for what you know God can still do today. The staff of God is the standard of God. You walk out ahead of the people searching for that heavenly sight. And you do it with those who are equally committed and you together hold the standards of God which have put down every enemy thus far. And the fourth one is very simple. He says, and go. The Bible in its essence is calling people from something to something. Called fishermen to leave their nets and follow Jesus. Called the nation to leave a country and go into the wilderness. It's calling you to leave darkness and go to the light. There is no such thing in the Bible as sitting still. Ever. God is active. He's moving. How would you describe your life? Are you stagnant? Are you in step with God's spirit? Because you can change that this moment, right now. If you knew that life-saving medicine was just ahead of you and that if you sat still, it would be out of your reach, you'd probably get up from your chair and run for it. I doubt seriously you'd wonder what other people thought. I'm pretty sure that you wouldn't look around to see if anybody else is running after it. I bet if you really believed that it would save your life and that it was the right thing to do, that if you would die without it, if you hated your life without it, that the moment you realized it was there, you'd run over people to get to it. That's what salvation looks like. We don't bow our heads and close our eyes in this church. In this church, if you are not man enough to say, I need more of Jesus, I need Jesus for the first time, I need to get baptized in the Holy Ghost, I need to repent in front of the congregation of believers, then we know you won't be man enough to do it out there. We know that. And we're not going to pacify your conscience by telling you if you raised a pinky one time in a dark room in front of friendlies that Jesus Christ, He has saved your soul because it's a lie. You'll know when he saved your soul, his grace has appeared and you hate sin. And you're running after him and you don't care who knows it. That's when. So keep your pinkies to yourselves. Stand to your feet, would you?